0: Hey people, Jose Nino here. El Nino Speaks is back after a brief hiatus. However, fear no more because we're here with more consistent content after sorting out several extracurricular matters, if you will. Nevertheless, I'm glad to have Merrick and Bog Beef of the Good Old Boys podcast back on the show. What's new of y'all?
1: Oh, not much in the grind. I mean, we're uh, still going. I don't know how many years has been, Merrick. Yeah, it's been not four yet, three and a half, but close. (laughs) Yeah, really hard to believe. Yeah, which is like you know decades in this business.
0: Yeah, you guys have been really cranking out content and been consistent about it. Can't say that about a lot of other people these days. But that's great to hear. Now, one of the biggest things I've really caught onto your show from the jump has been centered around the concept of patronage before we dive into patronage and its importance to understanding the like the basics of politics could you give my audience a overview and basic definition of what patronage entails
1: so there's multiple levels to this but the most basic definition for patronage would be a relationship between a patron and client where the patron provides things like protection, money, and access to a client. A client provides loyalty, thanks, and allegiance. The best, easiest fictional example would be, think of Don Vito and The Godfather. The very beginning of the the first movie where he's talking to the undertaker or the the mortician, he says, I would like you to do these things for me, but I want you to come around and call me Godfather. Come have coffee with me. Do these things. And um, the best real example is Going back to Roman times, this was just the direct legal relationship between a politician and uh, his client. You were the patron. Patron must come from the Latin word for daddy, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. If if you wanted to go even more basic than that, it's just a description of every political relationship that human beings have ever had and ever will have. It's just sometimes more obscure than others. Well,
1: you don't give them the sale package yet. But (laughs) I mean, we, we take this much, much further. But. I mean, as far as anyone, those are just, like, factual observations, like, what does this word mean, et cetera. But, of course, we take this concept to the moon.
0: Yeah, I wanted um, to touch upon uh, the Roman example because, like, these concepts that you guys talk about are not, like, groundbreaking. They're not new. In fact, you can trace them back hundreds, if not thousands of years. So... Well, how would you say like the Romans were able to perfect this? And if, and also if you can uh, demonstrate some examples, especially with the case of Julius Caesar, who you guys talk about like ad nauseum. So in Rome in the morning, if you
1: were a leader, there's this, and I mean, you, we can see none of this stuff is really particular to Rome. Rome kind of like invented government as we know it. So all these things should sound familiar. Basically, if you're, living on this planet for the past 2000 years. So there were men who were leaders and they were generally had military service. They were a military officer. They were an attorney as a profession and they were worked in what we would call a government, which would be, and how that would work is in the morning, they would go outside front of their house and their clients would be outside. This is, this is people waiting outside to ask favors of them. There was a great article month or two ago about the death of a Catholic priest in Brooklyn. And he did exactly the same thing that Julius Caesar did this Brooklyn piece in Rome. He had a, uh, there was a little office, like a little league baseball park or something in Brooklyn. And there would be a certain time every day where these local people, they would come and say, Hey father, my nephew needs a job or somebody I know has had legal trouble or I'm having trouble getting a permit to build a building. And these are all things. In other words, these this is all the government and this is all people need just like literal legal someone to represent them for the government. The lawyer relationship really puts this forward because if you're an attorney, you're representing on behalf of someone. This should sound like 30 IQ because this is just the, But that's what it is. This isn't exactly Hegel or anything. This is just super basic shit.
0: Yeah, there is like a caveman politics aspect to this that you can like really just trace back to like times where people just started organizing and built like very primordial Uh, political structures. Now to bring this back to a more modern American context, I do recall like in the first time you guys appeared on my show, I think it was Merrick, if I recall correctly, he said that Andrew Jackson, for example, was like the first like true politician the U.S. had, like especially at, at the helm of the presidency. Would you guys say that he was also like the first politician to introduce patronage networks into like us politics
2: no he didn't introduce them but i think that he was the first like modern politician in the united states and his presidency set the tone for what would come next i think what he really did was he was really good at it Uh, he was really he was really good at, at building networks and using his clients to break up some of the power of the people who came before them, which they've never forgiven him for, by the way. Every historical crime that Jackson is accused of, like the real crime is is that he turned to the plebs to use gain political power over the the over like the, the, what was left of the Federalists. Now, to sort of
1: expand what we're talking about, we talk about patriots. So there's that first level of the definition I gave you. Then there's what got me interested in this, which was a book by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita called the Dictator's Handbook: Why Bad Behavior Is Always Good Politics, and in that he's using this, and this is all a basis of everything that I, the way I think about this stuff, and and he sort of lays it out like, you know, there's people that every I think everybody has kind of a home base at how they look at politics. Like there's people that when they hear a story, they say, "Well, what is the class here? What is the race here? What is the follow the money or?" Uh, You know, how is the deep state involved or something like that? That doesn't mean that that's the sum of all your thoughts, but everybody has like a home base and he sort of lays out something that there's ever since I've heard it now. I mean, it's my home base and there's lots and lots that you can derive from it. And I'd like to go into that some, but, and from that, I think what we've done is there's different levels. There's like, I've derived from not just like what is, but what should be from his book and, and everything he's written about this patron stuff, because all this stuff about this direct patronage, which I really like the direct patronage. I like having a local elite that I can go to and say, Hey, my son needs to go to college. Can you help me get him into West point or something like that? That It's open. Everyone knows this is the big man. I can go to him. So Andrew Jackson literally studied these tribal relationships from uh, Scotland, northern ireland and britain and he like like literally studied books about like tribal politics and how to do that he distributed this literature to his top officers and stuff i mean andrew jackson deliberately wanted to change american politics into a more this the best way people can think of it that makes sense here is uh, it's not how I'd like it to be, but like basically mafia style politics. See, but that's not really how it is. But if you go to any area that's not super developed in the in the entire world, and the best place you could see this, Vice used to have these these awesome little documentaries where they would show you basically what it's like in some random place in the Middle East or something. And it's always the same thing. There's a local big man. He taxes people. He's in charge of all the local muscle, etc. And I think the closer you get to this relationship, in fact, the better things are.
2: Oh, okay. First of all, the problem with the this view of Jackson is like that you know, they, or that he invented patriotist politics or mafia politics, whatever. John Adams was the second president of the United States. He was the the, the second guy to do the job. The last thing he did after he was in his lame duck, you know, after he lost the election, but he was still president was he just tried to pack the government with his appointees. He was right. He was writing down names to submit like, you know, before midnight when he he would officially no longer be president. So it's not like people in early Republic didn't understand how this works. Like they obviously did. What Jackson did was, so Jackson has an election. He gets part of my language. He gets rat fucked by like other political leaders, Pretty overtly. The man, he won the election, but he didn't become president of the United States. So what do you do if you're him? You got two choices. You can either lie down and take it or you can turn to somebody else for your political power. And what he did was he turned to the public. You could say he invented populism in the United States. I think you could absolutely say that. And, and this then like again this is why he's hated but like the, i don't like the comparing it to like to mafia politics no. No, no no it was it was popular politics it's like this is the birth of popular politics in the United well, well, states well let's
1: let's get into some of like where how this stuff derives from. So i think what you're talking about is and so if you read the dictator's handbook and all the things that it sort of recommends and what you were talking about doing well at there's different like you can like kick ass at the sort of uh patronage politics and there's modern leaders we could talk about that are that kick ass at patronage politics. And what you'll find is that they usually die in office. They stay in office. That's one way. Something that comes from patronage politics is the way you look at, first off, the way you look at politics is like from the individual leader, like being Joe Biden, like what it's like to be Joe Biden or what, or, or whoever, or Erdogan or any of these people. And the goal is survival the goal is political survival the other books he's written are all usually have political survival in the name but someone like erdoğan erdoğan will probably die in office why because okay for leaders the political landscape can be broken down into three groups of people the nominal electorate the real electorate and the winning coalition now this is the case for african dictatorships for northern european socialist countries or democracies it really doesn't matter. This is one of the funny things that you start looking at things this way. You know, we have a, this idea in the West that democracy is just a completely different thing than, but no, it's just it's all it, all governments look the same when you kind of take a step back. It's kind of like, um, uh, you know, there was all this stuff in the 80s about the uh, military-industrial complex. Well, they didn't have any of that in Russia, but they had all the same shit. They had all these different, you know, Sikorsky and and MIG and, you know, trying to get the contracts and stuff like that. They don't, you know, they literally don't even have capitalism and they're, they're still doing all, all the same stuff. But, okay, so the three groups of people, nominal selectorate, the real selectorate, and the winning coalition. The easiest way to look at this is through the, um, what do you call the state math when you're running for president? Electoral college. Yeah, yeah, the electoral college is the best way to, to look at this. So everyone knows there's states that do not matter, that you do not need to appeal to if you're running for president. Who cares what California thinks? You know what, you know, the way they're going to vote. And then there's the real selector of the people who matter, but none of that really matters. What matters is the winning coalition. Winning coalition is the minimum number of people that you need to support you to stay in power or to get. Now there's, there's other things that you were talking about with Andrew Jackson as far as getting power, because if someone else is in power, you can sort of make moves with this, but the essential coalition. So if you're an African dictatorship, who's your essential coalition? Well, it's probably like the local warlords that are in charge of the whoever the boys are that have rifles. You know what I mean? You have to keep those guys happy or you won't be in power anymore.
2: You could argue that the military is always the real essential coalition in every kind of government. Obviously, the United States isn't on the same level, but think about what happened in 2020 in the United States. The uh, Whether or not the... United States military would carry out, carry out the orders of the sitting president when his, his house was surrounded by angry people. And, you know, you have someone like Mark Miley communicating to the Chinese that don't worry if the president of the United States orders an attack, we'll let you know about it. Right. And not not to get too into the weeds of this, but you, you, you guys remember the stories about, you know, Nancy Pelosi having conversations with, like the Pentagon about the president of the United States, because ultimately it does come down to the guys with the guns. They are your essential coalition in the end.
1: Right. And what this would imply in patriot politics, your goal is to find who the, your essential supporters are the people you need to stay in power. And you want to keep them overloaded with gifts. So you'd like to do things like say, tax the general populace and take that money and give it to those people. Here's an example that I like. So, as it turns out, one thing that is always expedient is remaining solvent. If a ruler has run out of money with that which to pay his supporters, it becomes far easier to make for someone else to make coalition members an attractive offer. The Russian Revolution is often portrayed through a prism of Marxist ideology and class warfare. The reality might be much simpler. Kerensky's revolutionaries were able to storm the Winter Palace in February 1917, because the army did not stop them. And the army did not bother to stop them because the czar did not pay them enough. The czar could not pay them enough because he foolishly cut the income for one of his major sources of revenue, the vodka tax, at the same time he fought World War I. Czar Nicholas confused what it might seem like good public policy with bad political decision making. He had the silly idea that a sober army would prove more effective than an army was falling down drunk. Nicholas, it seems, thought that a ban on vodka would improve the performance of Russian troops in World War I. He missed the obvious downsides, however. Vodka was vastly popular with the general populace, most assuredly with the troops. So, so popular and widely consumed was vodka that its sale provided about a third of the government's revenue. A third of the government's revenue. With vodka banned, his revenue diminished sharply. His expenses, in contrast, kept rising due to the cost of the war. Soon, Nicholas was no longer able to pay the army. As a result, his army refused to stop strikers and protests.
2: Could you imagine being in a Russian army without being drunk?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I
2: can't even picture. Yeah, that.
0: same. Yeah, that that is one uh, very bizarre scenario. Yeah, that, that also goes to show to the public policy type of fixation some people have, especially in conservatism Inc. That there's like sometimes where good public policy makes for bad, like political decision making. Because when you're, like, really tied to abstractions, like philosophical abstractions, like limited government and all this other stuff, uh, you lose sight of the fact that what you're pursuing may actually undermine, like, the core constituencies you need to stay in power and also just, like, impose your basic agenda and sometimes even just, like, scrape by and politically survive.
2: Well, let me, let me extend an olive branch to libertarians because they get a lot of flack you know, in, in our sphere of politics, but for the reasons you just said, you know, the obsession with limited government. But like from a patron from a patronage standpoint, if you're a libertarian, the people that you're trying to reach, like you can't really offer them a better deal than we'll stop stealing from you and giving your money to your political enemies. Like that's pretty much the best deal you can offer them. And this is this is kind of a problem with politics on the right in the united states and other places in the west because okay you know you're trying to reach a let's say uh, a white male perfect not maybe not even professional but just someone who makes over the median income like what can you offer him that won't be simply taking money from him to pay it back right you don't really have the means to do that whereas your political opponents can say, We'll take that guy's money and give it to to our supporters. So like, yeah, they do have some utopian ideas about how things could work, but there is logic in it. One of the basic tenets of the selector theory that Blog Beef is talking about is that you, in politics, you take money and resources away from your enemies and give it to your friends. That's the, according to Bueno de Besquite, that is the basis of all human politics and if you're a libertarian what can you do what are you going to take from your enemies
0: yeah i do think that there are some libertarians especially the ones that are less um, universalist minded that probably believe in like hard federalism where they would be much more amenable to the idea of like patronage politics say like at the state and local level but they just want to totally downsize the federal government like altogether that's like probably like would say like a lot, the mises institute people because even uh murray rothbard he was actually pretty receptive to machine politics from like the gilded age up until say like the the new deal he was uh pretty receptive to that he was not a big fan of the progressive reforms which we'll actually touch upon because i've also like i've noticed this like just transition that you guys talk a lot about william m tweed aka boss tweed one of like the most like demonized figures like in american history you you look at any history textbook he is burnt in effigy due to his perceived corruption and the way he would just like constantly cut backroom deals just to stay politically afloat but you guys have like actually have like a different take on his body of work in what ways was tweed special and how did he like embody like these principles of like patronage
1: okay so boss tweed is awesome reason why he's hated is because the same liberals who uh you brought this before like one of the reasons like people if you're on the right like what is the biggest. Problem for the right today. I think it'd be easy to say something like the deep state, unaccountable bureaucrats in the ATF and et cetera. I don't think that's controversial. Where do these people come from? Well, they came from the legislation that was written to get rid of people like Boss Tweed. I think this should immediately make people reconsider the legacy of people like Boss Tweed and, more importantly, the people who were demonizing him. Boss Tweed was far, far closer to Trump. Or any of these people, then people imagine Boss Tweed was was a good man. He was a great leader of this of New York City. You can. What's funny is I've been putting off putting making an episode on Boss Tweed, right? Where but what's funny is when you try to research Boss Tweed, I've bought like five books on him, and there's essentially like nothing written about anything until like the day he's on trial, and they just love to talk about the trial. If you look at like what actually happened in New York City, like what the government was like when it was run by Boss Tweed. All these things that people love about New York City, like the Brooklyn Bridge and the Museum of Modern Art and and all these wonderful things that people love, that was all built by Boss Tweed, the most crooked man in the entire world. And what you see happens now, and they don't build any of this shit now. What happens is, so back in the old days, you paid your taxes, Boss Tweed would literally just like, while the money was going to the bank to being deposited, he would just snatch like 40% of it and he would use that to pay his friends. And now there's nothing illegals going on. Uh, mostly it's just all legal, but instead all this money just goes to all these like bullshit like uh, gender doctors or diversity consultants. And like, I don't know where it goes, but it don't go to build no more fucking bridges. And so this is what I mean, where I start taking the, this stuff to be like, well, actually the closer you are to the ground to being just raw patrons politics, in fact, you have better results.
2: Yeah, that's not necessarily the case. However, it has been the case. It's been the case here for, you know, the lives of our parents, at least just because of the way the important thing about Tweed and he had the right enemies, the people who've ruined the country and have been ruining the country for like 150 years. Are the people that put him in jail? It's like just for that reason you should like Boss Tweed. But the thing, the thing about direct patronage, it's not that, that like the would I just say libs to to make it simple. But it's not like they don't have patronage. Like they do. Like their patronage is our economic system at this point. You know, <laughs> you know, free university, not for free. A free university loans, college loans, student loans. Is a form of patronage. Like it, it's a way that you, you, everybody who's listening to this, if you pay taxes, you're paying the loans for people to go to college to support, you know, people who work at the universities, and like the students who are taking these loans. A lot of them aren't getting jobs that can pay it off. So we have these constant political struggles about, hey, now we should take more of your money and pay off those loans. This makes no sense, except, well, if, for instance academia was a big part of your clientele if these people were important clients in your patronage scheme then it does make perfect sense it's like yeah the boss tweet style direct <laughs> bribery patronage would be more not just more efficient but more palatable for us because you could actually get like something out of it you could get a bridge built that you could walk across you can't do anything with the money that goes to harvard university unless you work at Harvard University. This is the bi- their big crime when it comes to their forms of patronage. It's it's so incredibly limited, and it, it falls on just like a, such a small uh, a small minority of people that it, it's far worse than anything envisioned by Tammany Hall. I mean, here's something to think about.
1: So why does someone like Robert Mugabe die in office after like how many years? Was Robert Mugabe office like sixty years or something like that? And someone like Trump didn't get reelected. Now, if you look at how someone like Mugabe ruled, I mean, his country would be starving. I mean, people would be dying because they don't have enough food and water. But all the guy, all the generals, all the people in the army would be fat. The people who were important to Robert Mugabe would get paid. And because of that, his people would keep like there's nothing that just automatically floating in the ether that would have that kept Robert Mugabe in office. If he didn't keep those guys fat with Cadillacs and steak dinners, they would have killed his ass. We've tried Reaganomics before. So in the eighties, Reagan was said that, well, by reducing taxes, a smaller share of a bigger pie, all this money that's taken out of, of the general fund, we'll just return it to the people by, by cutting taxes, lower taxes. And it didn't work. We, we, and then the tea party, we did the same thing. So in my opinion, what the right should do is think more like Robert Mugabe say, Hmm. Well, uh, how about we just take this fucking tax money? And are you a married couple with a mommy and daddy, and you just got married? Here's five thousand bucks. Here you go. Oh, here's a good example. I think truckers may be the most Republican like job there is. Isn't that we saw that that graph? Or not just Republican, but MAGA. You know, it's got to be up there. Yeah, I mean, you just get you a couple attorneys lying around in D.C. You could come up with a with a policy to
2: give them money. Well they are they already did and the Republicans cucked on it. They had a you know, truckers don't get truckers don't get overtime pay in the United States for like this really Byzantine legal reason. You're not getting extra pay. And there was a bill that just changed that. And this this is if you're a Republican, this should be a no-brainer. Like yeah, we well, you should make these people who are our supporters receive more money. But they didn't do it because like their actual clientele are the people who run the trucking companies. Which is funny because like a lot of those guys, like, the, you know, the person who runs the trucking company, much more likely to be your political enemy. If you're a Republican, he's probably going to donate to your, <laughs> your, your political opponents and, and not wanting to do with you in public. But the actual truckers would be your clients if you would do something for them.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't mind trying to, to do legislation that would just help the owner operators but you know if that would make yeah. people feel better ideologically
2: the owner operator yeah they're not really are they even in this like this particular debate about well the they have overtime pay? they
1: have to compete with these other truckers that are yeah
2: damn you got me you're right yeah you yeah, that, that does help them so yeah you by doing that you're going to help them yeah fair enough
1: this this also goes into identity politics in ways that in terms of offense so it's very easy for the Democrats to do like identity politics. Like, I don't know if people notice, like it works because there's like, if you talk about like patronage groups, like the old patronage guy that would in Rome that would had directly, you know, was the dude you could go to. Well, they, we, we know that Democrats have this in what they call their marginalized communities. I think this could be done away with, with not too much difficulty by, I think the Republicans need to, using their might on the Supreme court should revoke basically all the bizarre interpretations of the civil rights act back to the OG civil rights act. In other words, things like disparate impact and all this kind of shit. I wrote an article about this and I, my favorite one was because it's just so like contained. There's, there's this woman on Twitter and her profile says like uh, her job is to, you know, lasso all the Arabs in New York city into one voting block. Well, I can tell you, like, that's going to be successful. That's a good way to do politics. That's a way to kick ass at politics under the book. Therefore, if you're not her friend, if you're not on her side, we should be trying to stop this.
0: Yeah, one thing, um, just taking a trip down, like, memory lane that I've picked up on um, just after reading several books about the progressive era lately was how there is this. Weird cohort of intellectuals in the late 19th century and early 20th century that were fanatically committed to fighting political corruption, which sounds good and all. <laughs> that, that sounds good and all. But the devil is always in the details because one thing that became clear with all these civil service reforms and measures to break up political machines was a pretty significant trend towards technocracy and rule by a self-proclaimed expert class. Would you say that the progressive reforms were the first major set of blows dealt to the traditional patronage model in the U.S.?
2: Absolutely. Well, it's worse than that. Here's my reading of American history. You have the the very early republic when the parties aren't really fully formed and then Jackson comes along, and like I said, he kicks off actual politics in the United States as we know it. And this is a huge problem, like because one of the first things he, one of the first things he does is he destroys their attempt at <laughs> in a national bank. He stymies a lot of their efforts to build this. I won't say permanent bureaucracy, but you know we'll say the embryonic stages of it. He does a lot to just destroy this, and this goes on until the war. And then after the war. These people win and they go absolutely buck wild. Like it's not it's not a coincidence that like the height of Boss Tweet's power comes right around and right after the Civil War. When New York is a very important city, but it's a dem, it's a very like a democratic stronghold in the North, which is not everybody might realize how what a democratic stronghold in New York was. This is important because the country's run by Republicans and they don't like this. they deal with him within you know within ten years. he's gone. they destroy like, not only him but his machine well or, or I guess you could say they re- they repurpose the machine after this you get the civil service reform, which is the creation of a of, well i I'll give them credit. it's like setting a fire anytime you destroy something like, you create and release energy right so the country ran really well at first after civil service reform, because you probably were you like not probably, you certainly were having people who were better qualified in positions of power. Like there's just no doubt about it. And then if you wanted to do a military example in the civil war, the Northern army operated off of like direct political patronage. If you were a big shot in the North, in Northern politics, you would become a general and you would, you would raise a, your own little division or whatever. And this caused them a lot of problems because they went against professional like military generals in the South and they got the floor mopped with them for three years. I'm sure the same thing happened with canal and railroad projects right after civil service reform happened, because now you have people who are probably like meritocratically better. But the problem is anytime that you have this exchange of power, well, the first generation might be awesome. The second generation is going to be a little bit worse because now they've inherited their power from somebody else. And then you move it down the line to the 1930s. And you, you mentioned Rothbard. I just recently read his book about the Great Depression. And if you're listening to this and you've only heard people talk about Rothbard, but you never read any of his stuff, you should read it because it's, not, it's nothing like people tell you it is. And once you hit the 1930s, like this proto-technocratic uh, United States is on the verge of collapse because of a few mistakes that these people have made. And they supercharge it during the Depression and after the war. And then for the entire course of the 20th century and now the first 23 years of the 21st century, everything has progressively gotten worse when it comes to public policy, right? Is there anybody who would disagree with that?
0: No. Probably, like, uh, probably like some of those, like, rational optimist types, like Steven Pinker in that cohort, but, like, very few people, like, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> when you see the, the the comic that was, it's not, a, it wasn't made by, right, it was made by someone who believed this, where the guy's bike gets stolen, and the total happiness in the world goes <laughs> up.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my my bike is gone, but somebody's really stoked that they get to do wheelies with on my yeah. bike dude, yeah. in in Anacostia. Uh, uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the fact that a bike is stolen <laughs> is is proof there is material progress. That yeah, man.
1: Uh, let's just I want to just want to say about the about this the civil service reform just literally was like there's no way about it. If this isn't like secret or anything, it was creating unelectable bureaucracy and. That's wrong like w- regardless of any kind of like hardcore patronage stuff or whatever first off that's just flat out wrong and like really wrong like a king is accountable to people this is just so beyond unaccountable like like uh the way that so like uh, the FBI or or these things are they're just who are the these judges and stuff they're accountable to no one I mean this is so unbelievably wrong that Oh, yeah, I guess they kept their nose clean for a minute. But it's unbelievable that we've let this get this far. People must be government, leadership of any kind. If you're running a McDonald's, if you're a military officer, or you're in a government, you are a representative of others. You are the leader. But you're, but a leader doesn't exist without the followers, the people that that are relying on you. And so this was all just so deeply wrong. And I I don't know. I, I think mm. that just must be emphasized the, the idea that, that uh, you are just a judge just floating in the ether and no one, no one stands above you
2: or you don't rely on the support of anyone is just fucking wrong. Well, okay. You can't It's like saying judges because the civil service reform of the 19th century was not about making judges into legislators. That didn't happen until later. So you can't like what the civil service reform of the 19th century did was, it did create a bureaucracy and it was not unaccountable but less accountable to uh, elected officials which i do agree is bad however here's like a, a little counterpoint why it, it you could say it wasn't necessarily immoral you brought up the military and we've talked about this many times like the military there's no democracy in the military no by necessity right yeah but that that's, that's not the same thing That's not the same thing.
1: What do you mean it's not the same thing? An officer, like an officer and his soldiers, they're in a relationship together. He's the leader of those people, this unaccountable thing. You're just sort of taking this officer and throwing him out in the universe. And now he doesn't really have this symbiotic relationship with anybody. He has no general and he has no soldiers. Like, what is
2: these? Like, what, what are you if you're this unelectable bureaucrat? Well, I mean, they, but they did have their, their officers and their generals. It just, it, changed from it changed from like the the early model of the, the spoil system which
1: what gets a bad rap oh, which is like why it, does it have this crazy name that that the people in the government their jobs should come from like elected people in the government like why is that a bizarre thing that we need this special name for whatever how like how did it ever get to this other way we do it now is i mean isn't that very very strange
2: well Obviously, because we've already said this, like history was written by people who hated, <laughs> who hated popular sovereignty at, at that time. They, they didn't like it. So yeah, they put a really a really bad spin on the spoil system. But like how it developed? there was a system, but it really wasn't set in stone before then. Well,
1: we know how it developed. So there's another story that comes from the other end of Rome, which is called the Praetorian Guard. And this is sort of uh, when Rome is is on its downfall. If anyone's ever been to the Papal Palace or whatever, you will notice there's these very men with strange uniforms. They're the uh, the Swiss Guard. And the Swiss Guard operate in the same model as the unelected bureaucrat. The Swiss Guard are just some random guys from somewhere else that aren't directly plugged in, and they're just there. And everyone understands it's, it's kind of strange. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I I can definitely grasp that. Now, as for like modern times, like I'd say, like post (laughs) New Deal, how would you say that the political class has continued undermining patronage networks?
2: I'll just say for the record, I don't think they have undermined the patronage networks. I think they created, they used the Franklin Delano Roosevelt to enshrine their patriots' networks in the law and make sure that they had no competition and that everything that's happened since he came in the office has been a way to reorganize like who was in charge of networks who benefited from it. And they've been strengthened just nonstop since the war. Yeah. I always think of someone like, imagine if you're a a Canadian
1: conservative, which (laughs) I mean, Please. I've ta- I've talked to people, we saw people at these protests and stuff. I don't think that there are more say Sikhs in Canada than there are, say like uh, Baptist conservative people. In fact, I think the amount of like uh, evangelical, conservative, people that are against abortion, people that have basic conservative ideas, and I don't mean like like the party. I mean like much, much more conservative than is available. In the Canadian political system, I think there's probably like 50 times more of those people than there are, say, Sikhs. But everyone knows that Sikhs kick ass in Canadian government. They do awesome. Why? Because they, they're like well, something that goes in the book. I don't know, I recommend people read it is, well, the Sikhs, they have like there's a guy that you can directly. they They have a real patronage guy in their little neighborhood that you can go to and you can make deals with. There's nobody you can make deals with in the conservative thing. And this all comes from all the bullshit from the, uh, uh, civil rights act, et cetera, where there's no Jesse Jackson for people like me. There used to be, and he was, he was, he was called the devil. I mean, there's been a couple there's, (laughs) there was George Wallace. There was the guy from Liberty university. Do you remember the party they had on CNN and stuff when, um, Jerry Falwell died? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jerry Falwell was like, he was a patronage guy for a certain kind of white guy. So was George Wallace.
0: Yep. Yeah. I can't, you can't have those type of people in politics now because it's just way too toxic and reactionary and racist. Well, It's
1: literally illegal now yeah. due to the, the, the advances in the civil rights act.
0: Yeah. The <laughs> civil rights revolution for you there. Now I've noticed that you guys, um, Talk a lot about Jim Clyburn um, of um, South Carolina, because I've always wondered, are there like any other politicians that you believe like perfectly embody patronage concepts?
1: Erdogan, Clyburn, now, in terms of mo- super modern people in America, Clyburn's funny because like if you're like really locked into the patronage math and stuff, so you can get an office without patrons. Like who's the the governor now of Arizona?
0: uh Katie,
1: Hobbs. Katie Hobbs. Hobbs yeah yeah Katie Hobbs was just like a, a volunteer for the Democrat party there somebody they threw her on a ballot she doesn't have these kinds of relationships you can get in office without it and now but someone like Clyburn Clyburn is like just like he's so deep in all these different these things like I don't know if people know about the Gullah his wife is a princess in this little this subsect of black people called the Gullah in South Carolina Ironically, I mean, what's bizarre, bizarre Gullah people are pretty conservative. Like, if you ever see like, um, you know, there's been a couple country music black people like, uh, who was the guy from the 70s, Merrick? Charlie Pride. Charlie Pride. But basically every black conservative that you, people know of, and even ones who keep it on the low, like everyone knows that Michael Jordan is basically conservative. He's like a frat boy. He plays golf all day they tried to get him to say like BLM shit. And he was like, well, Republicans buy sneakers too. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, all these guys, they're all Gullah because they're, it's just this little rule thing. Anyways, he's plugged into that. He's also master of the congressional black caucus. And because he has this sort of special armor of, of the patronage politics, he can just be very flippant and insulting to, uh, to his colleagues in the democratic party and stuff. And, uh, Anytime they build anything in South Carolina, it's the Jim Clyburn Center, and it's the best example we have in America now.
2: You know, for a long time, we would post this picture of him doing the finger guns, point the camera, and we would talk about him because he gets the job done in the patronage sense. And he's one of the last overt guys who, like who, who does politics in this way. However, I always say caution people not to give him too much credit because He's got a lot of things going for him. One, he's got the com- he's got the, the community of people that's separate from even the rest of his political coalition. He's old and he's been in politics a long time, which means that he started out in a in a period where the machine that runs the Democratic Party wasn't as strong as it is today, and there was room for that. And at the end of the day, he's a black guy and he does black patronage politics, which in America is like. Playing on not even easy mode. It's just like it. It it it, 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 it's a machine that almost runs itself because it's it's so easy to do. But on the other hand, there aren't really many other people like him. And once he's gone, I don't know who would even make the meme about after he he retires from politics. Who's left? It's
1: much more than just being black. I mean, so you know, Bernie tried to build like a team of his own, and he tried to run this woman in one of these one of these districts who was also black, and then. Yeah. She talked shit about Clyburn. So Clyburn basically spent no money, went to that district, brought his own candidate, uh, did a couple of speeches at, at at churches and blew blew Bernie's candidate mm-hmm. out. And I think the main part of it is that Clyburn is like a thousand years old. So he comes and he's literally like he's in his mid eighties. And so he comes from a different era of yes. politics.
2: Because you know we complained and <laughs> complained endlessly about the Yankee threat you know the, the the liberals like the the thing is we had the thirties and the new deal, but there was a shift in every like they pretty much brag about this. There was a shift in the sixties where they purged a lot of their <laughs> previous clients and and rejiggered the coalition so that it was. Now, like, professional class people were explicitly part of the project. It was like, we're going to just get black people to vote for us, professional class, and still enough factory workers that we can, you know, that we can be competitive and win elections. It kind of brings me roundabout to one of the points that people don't understand about patronage that we've talked about from time to time. By the way, you just
1: laid out a central coalition
2: right there. Yeah, exactly. That's what, like, again, I won't go too far in the weeds, but... Before, let's say, 1968 to 1972, the Democratic Party coalition, it was you had labor, you had a very important voting block in the South. Black people, some black people came on board during the New Deal era, but not really. They were still mostly Republican.
1: As the shit hard um, Republicans are wont to say lately, Martin Luther King Jr. was a Republican.
2: Yeah, and, and you know they
1: <laughs> love talking about that.
2: They explicitly blew this coalition up in the '60s and said we are going to create a new one, and it's going to be like academics, professional class people. We're going to we got well, LBJ got the black vote, and he's got some <laughs> hilarious quotes about that. And you know, immigrants <laughs> and women, and this this is the the target, the new coalition. Single, that they single built. women,
1: and, single single women,
2: and and this. In the short term, it was catastrophic. You can look at the, like the 72 election. It really hurt them short term. But like, why would you, you're thinking, why would you purge people from your political coalition? Isn't the whole point of politics that you want to get as many people as possible to support you? And the answer is no, you don't. Because the more people that you have in a coalition, the more malice you have to feed. And the more mouth you have to feed, the more diluted it gets. And you no longer if you're trying to appeal to everybody in the United States, you're not going to be able to give them a very good deal. If you're trying to appeal to, let's say, 20% of the United States, you can give them a lot of stuff. This is a rich country. You can you can dole out a lot of things to, to a fifth of it at the expense of the the other eighty percent. And like that and this is this is something that's not intuitive. It's hard to understand, but it explains a lot of behavior that doesn't otherwise make sense.
0: No, yeah. Like if you look at like the effectiveness of lobbying and whatnot, whatever side of like the political spectrum you stand on, whether it's like gun rights or whatever, concentrated interest groups that are well-organized outperform a lot of Majoritarian um, type of like dispersed interest. Like, for example, if you look at the constitutional carry case, I'd be willing to bet that if you went on a strict like plebiscite basis or polling basis, in a lot of these red states, there would probably be a majority of people that are against the concept of constitutional carry. But because gun owners have gotten so organized and their lobbies have gotten so on point. That they're able to like still pass this legislation regardless of like what public opinion says about it,
2: and also this is not really a patronage thing, but just like a, a, an actual politics thing that's overlooked. They're afraid; they're really afraid of us, too. Yeah, they're like yes. they're scared. They're they're scared of us because like we'll we care enough that we will go, we will punch them at the polling booths. I, I I mean I'm not trying to get to I'm not trying to fed post or anything, but like they're probably also perhaps physically afraid of gun people for obvious reasons. So like that goes a long way too.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, politicians like really do not, even if like they uh, don't get unseated, they really do hate whenever they get a bunch of petitions dropped on um, in their office or like faxed in and people talking smack about them um, in media and primary challenges because all things being equal, but, uh, any like establishment GOP type would love to just not have a primary challenger that hits them on certain policy flaws.
1: You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's been a while. Um, I used to go eat lunch in the um, Texas state Capitol, like three or four times a week. Yeah. There's great food in there, but um, I think you can bring your AR 15 into the Capitol building.
2: Hell yeah.
1: And like, you got to go up there and they check it and stuff. And I don't know if they take your ammo or whatever. Yeah, I'm not
0: know. sure about, yeah, I'm not sure about that process, but yeah, I'm not too sure Based. Uh, about that. Cause I haven't been to the Texas state Capitol in a while, actually.
1: Yeah. This is, it's been a minute. So then maybe this isn't going on. I'm not giving anybody legal advice <laughs> here. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's a base thing to like, you know, you could get the implication. The implication is like, uh, it's to scare the politicians, uh, basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
2: please. I want to pitch to your audience like we're, we've talked a lot, uh, talked excessively about the 19th century and early 20th century. But like, well, well, the thing we were just talking about, well, let's see an example today, you know, not from 1968, but you know, 2023. Here's a good example. You're watching the Democratic Party today have like, you know, all these CNN, New York Times, they're basically kicking Asian people out they're uninviting them from the cookout like we've seen we've seen this you know, with the hate crimes, the affirmative action, the reaction to affirmative action being possibly repealed and just the general behavior towards the Asian American community that's very you, you would think that's strange you know, their population is going to grow I think it's a, only a few percent of the population now but it it could grow in the future. Why would you want to alienate those people? And it's just because you have very limited resources. You're going to have to make the choice between which one of these two groups that you're going to support. And it's not a hard decision. You have an extremely loyal demographic or you have a loyal but smaller one. What you're going to say, okay, so, sorry, thank you guys. You know, you're out. The stuff that we could give you, Sinecure's places in the university system, we need that for our people. And if eighty, if if like seventy percent of the Asian people who are applying to college are going to get get admitted under under these circumstances, instead of the people that we want to reward, that's not that doesn't work. Now we're giving all of our goodies to to people who aren't our bestest buddies. We need to fix that. And in the, in the past, they, in the case of Asian, and I don't know if, if you've been paying attention to this story about affirmative action and. Uh, university admissions they basically would just slap asian people with this note i guess that you you're, they had was a personality they had like a low personality score that so basically they weren't as personable <laughs> yeah. as other applicants so, so like if you were asian you applied to harvard you
1: got like an automatic minimum score on your personality test
2: Yeah, so because to offset (laughs) your your high SAT scores that would have gotten you admitted, you know, the the university system will be even more Asian if not for affirmative action, which is one of the reasons why it went to the court and is probably going to be repealed. And now they're going to have to find a new way to, you know, keep Asians (laughs) out of Harvard and put people that they want in there. I was reading from Asians talk about
1: their continued loyalties to the Democratic Party. Well, I saw a couple of things there's all some stuff about just that California, there's a lot of them in California and California is a one horse town anyway. But the other thing was that basically they, they know and I think they're correct. And I don't think this is a terminal cancer. And I'm not saying that the Republican party should, you know, become the, the Asian party tomorrow, but Republican party is still way too ideological and sees itself above representing people. Now I think a lot of that, I always think of, I I think Merrick, someone told us this on our podcast before, but that, um, so for example, when Donald Trump got elected to office, he had this list of all these super supporters he was going to bring in and put it, give like DC jobs and bring them into the organization. Do you remember this Merrick? Mm-hmm. And that Rince Priebus basically took this list of people and threw it in the trash. Yeah. This kind of thing where, you know, what's the Republican party going to do for them? Probably not very much. Whereas the Democrat party, they'll at least be in the, let, let them in the room while they're having the conversation, even though they know they're going to get shit on.
2: Yeah. This is the safe. this is always the safe bet. Like the problem for, from this perspective is, yeah, this is all, it's the safe bet, but you eventually reach a point where you're going to get such small returns from playing it safe. And, Swinging from the fences could give you everything. This is the, you know, the Caesar crossing the Rubicon. But
1: I doubt it's going to come from any kind of like, more than likely, in my opinion, Republican Party will always be bad. Well, the only thing that can be good is if big man leader reorients the party under him. But it doesn't have, I mean, I don't think it has to be Trump, but I think we need big man leader. That's just my opinion.
2: Well, and this is kind of traditionally. <laughs> patronage politics have been, I guess, linked to big man. The, the the big man. I get why that is because it's the most obvious and usually it's the best if you're a pleb because you you can you can get actually get a piece of the pie. But as we said, it, it's not like they're the only ones who do this. The oligarchies do it too, and and you can certainly whatever. I won't go into it again. There's so many aspects of American life today that exist as you know a patronage scheme for. Yeah. You know, 20% of the population, like they make our lives worse every day. You can see it happening. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, they do this too. But if you're outside of that, here's like, I guess the ultimate all time problem with the oligarchy, the oligarchy is like, let's, let me go even further back in the the middle ages. There were all these investiture controversies because if you were the king, if you were the, you know, the uh, emperor of the Holy Roman empire, the king, whatever, France, whatever, you don't like the church being too powerful because when the church takes lands, the church doesn't grow old and die. The church stays. The church—they're always going to be there. They're—they're they're never going to have to—you know—they're never going to die out. And you're going to be able to take their lands. That's just there forever. It's permanent, and it, as as it grows, it grows more powerful. It's—it's it's immortal. And oligarchies are. Not immortal in the same way, but close. Like we have one that's going on three generations now, maybe four, and it's not slowing down at all. It's growing faster. If you have, if Robert Mugabe is the president, Robert Mugabe is going to die someday. And then you're going to have, you're going to have room to shake things up. The oligarchy doesn't ever die unless somebody, a big man comes along and and sticks a sword through its heart. And that's what makes them so not only dangerous, but unpleasant. Because you're going to have a conflict. You can in the in the Roman version of this, yeah, Sulla's going to die someday, but the optimates don't aren't going away until you <laughs> wipe them off the face of the earth.
0: Just um, like cap things off. Do you see any viable form of like patronage politics coming back to like the Republican Party these days, or? Or are they just going to continue the same course?
1: I think so. I mean, I think so. I think, um, I don't know for sure, but it seems like things are, are unstable and accelerating in American politics. And if so, one would expect things to simplify, that we return to more primitive stuff. We've already seen this with Trump. And Trump might not be the end. Trump might come back. But I think things things. Because, you know, a lot of this stuff, going back to the 50s and 60s and all these times, America was so goddamn rich, it's just impossible for people to imagine how rich we were. Normal-ass people. I think, you know, nobody in, there's, nobody in my family has a college degree. I don't think I'm related to one person, a college degree. All these people back then in my family, like, people owned, like, owned Cadillacs. My dad, he bought a brand-new car when he was, like, in his early 20s working at a paper mill. And, you know, these cars, you go back and look at these cars from these times, there's wood grain all over the dash and you have big, big hemi motors and the, the, uh, you know, these, these, everything was so people were so goddamn rich. Cause I know people think about stuff like, um, Ruby Ridge and stuff like that. And they're like, well, nothing will ever happen because look at, you know, back then people, people tried to rise up and. And uh, they got put down, and people just kept going about their lives. Yeah, they did, but people were so goddamn rich back then, and they ain't rich like that no more.
2: I don't think I've ever told you this, even though all the years we've known each other. My grandfather was not born wealthy at all. He went in, the, he joined the Marines, left, learned some stuff about automobiles, became an auto mechanic, worked his way up to having his own shop, and he even taught it—you know—taught uh, auto stuff at Votech. This is you know a chud a chud success story. He had an airplane like a little pi- <laughs> like a little Cessna in in the in the eighties. He took me off in it a couple of times. He had a, he had his own airplane and he was just a, re- a regular ass guy with his own with his own airplane. Like, can you imagine? Can you okay? Can you imagine that today? Okay, so
1: if they they had like a civil rights disturbance in his area, or somebody was going after a statue locally. I don't think the guy with the airplane goes to protect the statue. I think he's got too much to lose. <laughs> I don't think that's the way it is. I think times are going to get rougher and things will simplify and we're going we're to see, we'll see more of this.
2: Yeah, to answer your question, Jose, like, unless the, the Republican Party is what some people say and it's literally a f- like fake opposition like that's in on the scam, like that it's intentionally trying to lose, it will have to happen. This is the only path going forward, and Trump was the beginning in the sense that he offered they were scraps compared to what the Democrats offer their people, but they were something for the for the four years that he was president, like the first time in our lifetimes we had like chuds had a better wage growth than the professionals like this for whatever reason you want to ascribe to it, our lives got a little bit better for the first time in forever, and of course they that's one of the reasons why they absolutely despise them. But some like this is the only path of the Republican Party if it wants to remain a national level political party. And like I said this one and back in like 2019 when we first when we were really early on. There's like the easiest patronage scheme that you could do tomorrow that would require no calories, and Bogbeef kind of alluded to it earlier, is that you could say. I'm going to cut a check to every, if, if you, if you live in the same household with your spouse, you're married, you have, you have a child in that household, we're just going to send you money. There's not going to be any kind of, we're not going to have it like based on your, your income or tax, whatever. No, we're just going to cut you a check and we're going to give it to you because you have mommy and daddy and baby living in the same household. And, and that's how we're going to reward you. We're going to take the money and we're going to take it from the, the guy, the, the, the blue hair people in San Francisco who are paying income taxes on their like $200,000 cold healing job. And we want to give some of that to you because, A, you're probably voting for us already. B, if you're not, you're going to. And C, what you're doing raising a family is good for our country. That's patronage right there. It's all you have to do. And you can do this tomorrow. There's more you can do. And so if that
1: sounds crazy to you, well, there's also... That's the carrot. There's also the stick. You know, something going back, I think, literally years, Merrick, that I remember I kept this belief that the Democrats were going to do what do you call where They refund your college thing. (laughs) Student loan forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, they're going to do this. And I think the majority of people said I was wrong about that. Right. Yeah. In 2019, it seemed unlikely. Yeah. They're going to do it. Why? Because, well, if you look at the patronage math, the, the most important supporters of them, are the people that go out, the people who are going to be burning down Memphis tonight, not exactly the people who are going to be burning, the people that get it started, the people who get those things started, the out-of-work people with law degrees and stuff, well, they're the essential coalition to the Democrats, and they're going to get rewarded. It doesn't matter anything about ideology or, or John Rawls or nothing. They're going to get, they're going to get paid. And I knew they were going to get paid after their performance in the last presidential election. They went to bat. <laughs> if you look at all the people, all the little things that happen, uh, all these little small individual actors in Philadelphia and all this stuff, those people, are, they're going to get rewarded. And well, when that happened, that's a huge boon for their party They're They did good in politics. That's
2: that's good politics. I'm glad you said Memphis, because there's one thing that we left out of the patronage talk, and this is something that that not people have trouble accepting is, is true, but it is, is that sometimes a patron delivers things to the client that's not not even what you would think of as material. Like yeah, sometimes it's money or programs, but sometimes you know, a patron can just say, you know what? I'm gonna let you burn things down in the city. I'm gonna let you beat beat on your political opponents and destroy their, their, their shops, or I'm going to let you rape and murder people who are, are your political enemies. And I'm going to let you get away with it. And let me tell you, it's like, if you're listening to this, you might think that's crazy, but you're not in the right mindset. There are people who that's, that's all you have to give them. And this is part of like the Memphis is the perfect example because the people who are organizing this, yeah, they're the people who want the student loan, forgiveness because they're you know they're they're steeped in whatever ideology but the people who are actually going to set shit on fire they're not they didn't they didn't go to uh, brown but they're receiving benefits as clients nonetheless and that's the dark side of this because as the
0: country becomes less wealthy. Oh yeah. I joke about this, but I've said like to people that once like the US welfare state goes insolvent and, and the US doesn't have like the money to not just do, like, welfare, but, like, reparations. I uh, joke that, like, each month they're just going to have, like, a programmed looting session for, like, Democrat clients to just go in and just, like, go ham and, and steal as much shit as possible, break shit, and then, like, yeah, that's their reparations check.
2: <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, and, and that's already kind of begun. You can <laughs> see videos that's of— like next-gen tax farming.
0: <laughs> y- yes, because— yes
2: yes exactly and i mean if you're ransacking a cbs and not getting punished for it you know the people who are doing that they're making a good amount of money you have
1: to pay your local lord like one pair of jordans for every 10 that you steal (laughs) 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 yeah (laughs) but the message of this for the (laughs) Republicans is just take care of your, your most important supporters. That's it's easy. And we all know they have a real fucking problem with that.
0: A Gucci source are gonna have to like allocate like every month like stuff they don't need, so people can just take them. <laughs> like, just take them.
2: <laughs> we'll to- This is your tribute to the Foot Locker's tribute to the con. He's got He's,
0: he's got to send a new pair of Kyrie's every month or be- <laughs> for free. Yeah, don't break our stuff. He, he, but here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put it past like at this point in this clown world polity that we live in.
1: So in new york city i think they still like uh when you do your taxes if you're doing building construction there's like a five to ten percent or whatever that you're paying the mafia that's like accounted for
0: (laughs) well i think it's a good place to wind things down guys merrick bog beef thank you again for coming on the show always a pleasure yeah it's great for my listeners that are just like tuning in and aren't so aware of your content where can they can follow y'all
1: That would be patreon.com slash good old boys. G O O D O L B O Y Z. There's free stuff. There's paid stuff. We're on Twitch once a week, but that's where you find all our stuff.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. I highly recommend their content. It's very on point and it's contrarian to say the least. And, (laughs) and yes, to my audience again, thank you for your patience and generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.